0: Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Evan Kleiman. Evan has been the host of Good Food on KCRW since
1: 1997. For 27 years, she was chef-owner of Angeli
0: Cafe on Melrose. She's also the founder of LA's Slow Food Chapter, a member of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council, and the author of eight books on Italian food and one video app, Easy as Pie please give a very warm welcome to Evan Kleiman. Thank you. Welcome. There are so many people here for this conversation, which is a conversation that I've wanted to have for a really long time, and I'm really happy to have these marvelous people with me to have it. Let me start with Javier, who's sitting right here. Javier is a writer uh, from East L.A. who covers food, culture, and music for a variety of outlets, including KCET, Savour Pasadena Magazine. He is also, and I bet you love this job, the restaurant scout for Jonathan Gold at the L.A. Times. Who knew that he had a re- even I didn't know that he had a restaurant. I'm going to have to really give him a dig about that. Um, when I first met Javier, my God. Like, huh, what- 17, maybe? L.A. 17. Yeah, 17. Yeah, so. He was known as the teenage glutster. <laughs> and it, so mean <laughs> that you know, such a long, lean fellow can eat so much. Um, <laughs> where he expressed his passion about um, food and, and the whole L.A. scene in this blog that he created. Over time, he has um, become one of the... Rising young food writers that we all look to for um, a different point of view. And a couple of years ago, he felt it was time to drop the teenage, <laughs> <laughs> and now he's okay. simply the glutster. The glutster. <laughs> um, you. Um, and you also uh, produce a radio show at KPFK.
2: Oh, yes, I produce the Pocho Aura Power with La So it's cool.
0: We like food and music together. <laughs> yeah, I'm cool um, Barbara, Barbara Fairchild, um, is just a legend in this town. She was... That means I'm old. <laughs> well, me too. She, um, she began her career with Bon Appetit, I mean, more than three decades ago. 1926, I think. Was, yeah. <laughs> but she was the editor-in-chief for 10 years uh, uh, when the, the magazine was based in Los Angeles and since january 2011 when um, the magazine was moved to new york ripped from me <laughs> ripped from <laughs> from barbara barbara's heart um, she's really started to um take on a sort of like i call myself a multitasking culinarian uh, barbara is like <laughs> the multitasking food editor periodical writer, overseeing of blog production. She's just doing a, a large multifaceted career. She travels a lot. She um, does a lot of food and travel writing. She's an editor, public speaker, radio personality, and a consultant. She recently taught a food writing class as an adjunct professor of journalism at NYU. And um, she's now involved with a new online publication, The Grape Collective, which is going to launch next year or later this year. Just
1: need more money, so keep (laughs) keep those checks coming in, folks. Yeah,
0: Yeah. (laughs) and you know, Barbara, during her heyday at Bon Appetit, was um, inducted into the James Beard Foundation's Who's Who in American Food and Beverage. Thank you. Now we go to a little bit of a different kind of bio. Alex's uh, Alex N Ortega. He's a professor of public health and psychiatry and biobehavioral sciences at UCLA, not a slouch. He's the director of the UCLA Center for Population Health and Health Disparities and the associate director of the UCLA Chicano Studies Research Center. I find those those things totally fascinating. Um, He conducts public health research among Latino children and families, including the undocumented here in California, in New England, and also in Puerto Rico. Pretty amazing. So we have the pleasure, the excess, and then the pain and the the not enough all together in one room. I thought, well, you know, we're, we're all currently Los Angelinos, and we all have to eat, and we probably all have our own particular point of view. So I wanted to ask each of you what you had before coming here tonight. <laughs> Just to get it all kick it off. This is not how I normally eat every day, but last night I took a soba noodle making class with a soba master, which was unbelievable. So I had these incredible buckwheat noodles. And I made a little cold soba thing with farm fresh vegetables and dipping sauce. I don't usually verge that effete.
2: (laughs) Um, Well, today, uh, I took it upon myself to just chill out and try as much to relax before coming here. So I cooked a lot. Um, I made a veggie burger. even if I'm, I'm not vegetarian, but there is this really good brand from Oregon that I like, so I made a, veg- a grilled veggie burger with a scoop of local burrata, um, and, uh, and some on of a- the burger. On the burger,
0: yeah. Oh, there you go.
2: And some bals- and some balsamic onions, like caramelized onions, and uh, with some oven roasted sea potato fries with uh, anchovy aioli um, to dip. So, <laughs> and a and a craft beer from Oregon too, as well.
3: Wow. Wow. wow, that is
0: very That's impressive like we'll you in your house tomorrow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys <got> asked.
1: <laughs> Barbara? Well, I spent the morning, believe it or not, at my, uh, my alumni college, Cal State Northridge. I'm a journalism graduate from there. And I attended a meeting this morning over there of a center that they have for food and nutrition and, and wellness, which was quite interesting. And afterwards, I got taken to lunch. So I had a grilled salmon salad with uh, avocado and a yogurt dressing. That was quite good. But before I came here, I had a snack. I, had a, I toasted an English muffin, and I put some Swiss cheese and a couple of slices of heirloom tomatoes. So... Tied me over.
0: <laughs> okay, so what did the public health advocate have? <laughs> yes.
4: I'm feeling a little guilty as the public health professor. I probably should have eaten a little bit healthier now having heard these two. Had you known you, you were going ask me, I would have eaten something quite differently before w- coming here. Um, actually, l- yes, last night I was catching up, which I normally do on Sunday nights with my DVR, and I ordered some Fresh Brothers pizza. Um, <laughs> and so before coming here, I had to walk my dogs, and I just threw a couple slices in the microwave and ran, ran over here so, um, <laughs> Um, So not exactly the same, but
0: (laughs) it's interesting to me, you know, it, it, whenever you ask people what they eat, if it's a a group of people here in the city who are in different parts of the city, usually it's pretty revealing. I would say this is pretty revealing as to how much of a demographic the three of us are, (laughs) which I don't know, is great and also really disturbing. Um, (laughs) And and which I think is sort of at the core of what we want to try and get, get to here tonight. Um, when I looked at the website when the announcement of this talk first went up, and I saw the photograph of the Grand Central Market, I thought, wow, what a perfect image for this talk, because the, the Grand Central Market is undergoing a great deal of change right now. And it's undergoing the kind of change that social and also involves food. So it's a place that has had sort of a long slide for a long time, but has really found its core group in the Latino community, Um, communities of color who don't have a lot of money, who have been able to go to the central market and get produce for not very much money and get a quick breakfast or lunch or early dinner for not very much. And now it's becoming um, gentrified, should I say? or. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of new food is infecting it. And um, I try and go every couple of weeks to try and take a look at what's going there. And So you you have these two worlds that um, it would be really great if we could learn how to have them interact with each other a little more. So um, I thought it would be good to start with Alex to give us some context here. Because we all know about the food circus that surrounds us, which to me is like the um, a combination of food entertainment that we have in media, and also the entertainment we get eating all the amazing, fabulous food that we have available to us here in Los Angeles. And amid all of this cultural richness and plenty, there is there's still a million people who go to bed hungry, a lot of them children in LA County. Um, the food banks say that um, demand, even before the $5 billion cut in SNAP benefits, um, is way outstripping the ability for us to um, help those who need. And then there's the paradox of obesity in the poor
4: communities. Great. So. so. I guess I'll just start from there. Yeah, just um, jump in. So, my, well, um, my colleagues and I are very interested in trying to have an impact on uh, low-income neighborhoods in Los Angeles that are um, classified as, as food swamps, or sometimes people call them food deserts, but they're technically food swamps, and these are generally uh, neighborhoods that have lots of fast food restaurants and um, poor access to healthy foods and fruits and vegetables and that sort of thing. Um, And the common venue for uh, food purchasing in these food swamps is the corner store. And so we are engaged in some interventions to um, convert these corner stores to become healthy assets for the community and to provide better access to healthy foods. And we're also engaged in, so it's not just converting the stores, but trying to determine whether or not these food environment interventions actually have an impact on the health behaviors and health outcomes of these communities. And L.A., um, you know, our work is mostly situated in East L.A. and in Boyle Heights, but, you know, you also have South L.A. and areas in Long Beach and all around the city where you see disparities in, in food access. And so you have, you know, communities on the west side. I live in Santa Monica where there's access to lots of great foods and farmer's markets and great grocery stores, and then you just go 12 miles east, and you have, or 12 miles south, and you have communities that have really poor access to um, healthy foods and lots of fast food restaurants, basically a fast food restaurant um, on every corner. And um, corner stores that are generally situated across from um, junior high schools and high schools, where kids go before school, during school, after school, where they buy chips and sodas. So trying to work with these store owners that they become not just healthy um, assets for their communities, but also in a way to try to impact uh, the obesity epidemic that we're seeing among youth in in our city.
0: You know, so much of what has gone on in food media for the last 10 years has been a process of educating people directly and also subterraneanly um, about food, about um, food from other communities, food from different ethnic communities, um, different types of food um, in terms of quality. And, and what fascinates me is the difference between a 16-year-old kid who grows up in Santa Monica or a 16-year-old kid who grows up in one of these other communities. I I have taught classes to get 16-year-old kids from the West Side who could write a book about food and nutrition and are unbelievably um, disciplined. And they know the choices they're supposed to make, mm-hmm. whether or not they always make them, but they are, are so informed. Um, are, are kids in these other communities as informed?
4: I think that there's, well, we, we refer to this as health literacy, and I think there is um, a high level of health literacy and food knowledge among kids across ethnic and racial groups in our, in our city and across communities. Um, I think all communities, regardless of neighborhood income, um, ha- struggle with getting youth to eat healthy. I mean, this is an old story. And what we do in our interventions and with the work that we do with the youth in East L.A.'s, We don't frame it as an issue of eating healthy, but rather an issue of food justice. And that there are inequalities and injustices in their communities. And you can get kids to corral around that notion as opposed to just telling kids, eat your fruits and vegetables, you know. But um, kids like to have a cause. And so it's more about reframing the issue to get kids motivated.
0: That's very, very, can I ask a question? The,
1: the people who own the corner stores that you're talking to, do they have any awareness of, of, that they have some sort of a responsibility, or they could have a responsibility to help change things? Are they receptive to your idea?
4: Um, the ones we work with, yes, but we spend some time um, canvassing and uh, trying to identify corner store owners who we would want to work with. So not every store owner is going to be motivated or to, to, to convert his or her store, or think of him or herself as a healthy asset for their community, or even part of the community in which they're working. Oh. So um, we spend some time uh, oh. you know, doing that.
2: But, but I can vouch for that, because I, you know, I'm, I'm one of those low-income um, families that you research. And you know, I, I was born and raised in East L.A. And um, those, the owners of these liquor stores, they do know their, their role, but at the end of the day, they're selling what the customers want to buy. And, you know, these kids want to buy Flaming Hot Cheetos and a Coke. Um, and, you know, because, you know, it's... Uh, and even if they have... because I, mean, I, I did a story on Toccalo, um, I, and I called it In Defense of the Liquor Store. Um, and I, I sat down for an hour and a half, and I, I, I observed what customers were buying at, at the corner store by my, by my parents' house, and right by the, by the arch on Whittier Boulevard. You know, and these kids were... you know, this lady, she was, I think Chinese, and she, she had bananas. She had like a like a handful of bananas, and she had like like uh, maybe five apples, sandwiched between like the ding dongs and the uh-huh. and everything else, like pretty junky.
0: But they're always the but apples yeah, that taste terrible yeah. too. <laughs>
2: exactly, you know the, yeah, those, those mealy apples. But um, but you know these kids still go and buy their 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 after school snack, and you know, I. My family, at least, and the families around me, and my neighbors, um, in my neighborhood, we, they go to a, a grocery market um, to buy their groceries every once a week or twice a week. And at least, from in my knowledge, um, they don't rely on the liquor stores to supply their, their, their house their housewares like their food their food that they cook. They do rely on it for a last for a last minute emergencies, like a like a dozen eggs or a or a, a, or a, g- a gallon of milk mm-hmm. or you know, some some chilies or whatever. But for the most part, we 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 go out to El Super or, or to Food for Less or to um, whichever other market is around us that we go to. So,
4: mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, that's and that's a definition of a food swamp, which is that it's not that there's not access to grocery stores in these communities, because mm-hmm. um, there are. I mean, you have grocery stores that are situated in South LA and East LA, but it's about but but they don't always sell healthy produce, or if they do, some of the the produce tends to be of not good quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also, part of our intervention work, it's not so much that you, if you build it, they will come. If you just do a paint job um, and reshelve some, some items and add some fruits and vegetables, that, that'll bring in the foot traffic. You also have to do the serious social marketing that's involved in the health education so that you, people, and, and the idea that with the effective social marketing and getting the message out there and working with youth. That the imp, that the that the impact of the intervention won't just be on the patrons, but on the community at large through the social marketing, and so you'll be impacted whether or not you go to that corner store or not.
0: Is have you have you done research, um, and maybe just you could talk to this too anecdotally, mm-hmm. um, in in particularly in, in East LA, do do families tend to cook more, and 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 make things more from scratch? Or are they relying, like much of America is relying now, on convenience
4: products? It's a combination. Um, it's, it's not an easy, an easy answer. Um, it's, it will vary whether or not there's a, 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 um, a grandmother in the home or a, a, the mother stays at home. Usually in those circumstances, the mom or the grandmother will cook. Um, but oftentimes, they, they, uh, the family will go to the fast, fast food restaurant. Um, and order food or order out. Um, so that's also a very common way for families to eat together.
2: But I feel also um, it's a lot cheaper to cook t- t- for a family or for someone to t- to cook at home. Um, so also, like, my friends, like, in high school, you know, I would go over to my friend's house, like, during when I had my old punk band, and we would go, and her, his mom, their mom would make uh, mole or would make burritos or something. And it wasn't, like, the, the healthiest thing, but it was the home-cooked food, which is a lot healthier than and it's fast food. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of families have to cook at home because it's cheaper than buying a family... I mean, you could buy a family pack at gyms, you know, like a generic burger place in, in, in L.A., And but that's still, like, 20 bucks maybe at this point. But you can make a caldo de pollo or a caldo de res or, or tacos for, for everyone or beans, a pot of beans, and that's, like, at least half the price of it to feed a family four or five. I, so. But I
1: feel as if a lot of the fast food places are slashing their prices to make it... Even you know, more. entice you yeah, even yeah, more yeah. to come in and get, you know, a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken for $10 or, yeah, yeah. you know, $8. It's, you know, advertising is very seductive yeah, yeah. and and people don't have a lot of time.
2: Yeah. And I mean, yeah, and even me, like, you know, when I would finish, what I, when I would, um, after my school day was over, when I went to Garfield High School, um, every day, I think for I think my whole ninth and tenth grade, I, I would eat like a double cheeseburger from, from BK. Just because it's ninety nine cents, and you know, I still want to go hang out with my friends after school.
0: Right, the double so, cheeseburger for ninety nine cents. Yeah.
2: So I mean, I I feel victim to that myself too. You know, so it's not a it's, yeah. It's a double, it's kind of a it's really hard to find the fine line. Mm mm-hmm. how, how
0: did how did you evolve? How how did you find your way into another mm-hmm. world of food?
2: Jonathan Gold. I just started. You know, I, I would look. I would I would uh, read LA Weekly to find. The local punk shows happening around town and then i just one time i was like i was um reading through i was just skimming through it and i saw one of his articles I'm like okay i think i saw like he dropped like a reference to punk rock there or like hip-hop or whatever I'm like, okay cool i like this guy so i just started you know through him i started reading more about food and and then i just i i got i i for a while i went to a high school in alhambra and and he would write about the restaurants down the street from alhambra for me so there were i could go Try them out because they were super cheap anyway. Um, so,
0: did yeah. your friends think that you were kind of freaky for starting <laughs> to explore in a different way?
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, at one point when I was a senior, I would hate minimum days just because like everyone would go have like lunch with their friends and like at Rick's or whatever burger place, and uh, but I would like walk like 10 blocks to go try like Wahib's Middle Eastern falafel or something by myself because no one else wanted to come with
0: me. They wouldn't come with you really? They wouldn't come with me, yeah. Okay, so this this I find really fascinating because um, I've been doing a lot of conversations lately around California cuisine and um, one thing that a lot of chefs have been telling me is one of the, the great hallmarks of California cuisine and its diversity of flavor is the fact that the audience is so unbelievably receptive, that people here in LA will basically um, want to eat everything, which I also think is a relic of Jonathan Gold. But, um, and so how, how does it happen that kids who grow up within, even though they're in their neighborhood, they're still within the larger culture? What what do we need to do to break down that wall that's a lack of curiosity or.
1: Well, I think 10 the safety zone so is something else. I mean, it, I think it's for any age or any ethnicity, it's just something that you're not used to eating or used to trying, like the mm-hmm. falafel. If you don't have a natural curiosity about it, I mean, I grew up in a food household. as as you did. And so we wanted to try everything and we weren't intimidated or we weren't deterred from going to other parts of the mm. city or, you know, it didn't even dawn on us because we'd read about something. But you, I think part of it also is just having that natural interest in yeah, tasting other things. I mean, it's, it's sort of like what you were talking about with the corner store. If, even if they're cooperating, you can lead the people to the apples and the bananas, but they're still buying the Cheetos and the mm. soda. So... It, I think and it then has going to the emergency to do, room, and then, right, or you know, <laughs> so which is too, which they
2: do, the kids yeah. do, right? but, but also like do. stomach. But, but I think that well, you and know.
0: also fear from the flaming cheetahs. There was that yeah. whole article that was just.
2: <laughs> but I mean, at the end of the day, like um, most good food costs more money than than what like the what kids want to spend for food.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Although it doesn't have to, yeah, but the, people don't to, believe they... that when you tell them that. I think that's part of yeah. the. Well, the bar is set so low, you know. I mean, just, ninety-nine cents for right. a double, right? Or more. Yeah. I mean, ninety-nine cents for two burgers a yeah. Jack in the Box or whatever he's advertising now on television. Just it's just appalling when you see those ads. You get.
4: I think we're also seeing a shift in the way, of, you know, at mealtime activities and families, and um, families eating together at dinner time. I think you know we see this in our work, and I've been reading about this. I luckily don't have a, I mean, I don't know luckily, but I just have my two dogs, But um, so I'm not speaking from experience, but from what I hear, um, you know, that the, that the family meal time has kind of gone away in many, in many households. Well, everybody's and, working. <clears throat> people are busy, they're working, kids are, have very structured days now with school and, and, and um, physical activity, after, you know, sports and tutoring and band practice. Everything is highly, highly structured now. So there's not that time anymore to have family meals. And then also the way that parents use um, food to um, you know, to encourage their kids. To bribe um, them? To bribe them. Um, eat, uh, and also you know, demanding that they, their kids eat their entire plate. And if, we've, if people have not noticed, the, the size of plates have changed over the last several decades. So I look at my mother's china cabinet, right? So you know, my, my grandmother's old dishes. And a, and, a, and a full plate was about, you know, a this plate. big. Mm-hmm. Now you go to Crate and Barrel or Ikea or wherever, you know, and you, the plates are now like this. So eating your whole plate is very different in 2013 than it was in, you know, 1945.
0: Wow. Mm. I never thought of that. It's, it's absolutely true, though. Um, Barbara, yeah. you, you have such a different life because I feel like what, what you do these days, and and when you were with Bon Appetit, is you you travel a lot. Yes, I still do. And um, so you see the world beyond L.A. When you're you're out there traveling and, and talking to people outside of L.A., is there the same level of concern, or is there even a part of the conversation that we have come to this kind of strange, bifurcated moment of both food adoration, food porn... Food accessibility for a certain group of people, and then um, such a such a really appalling um, situation on for others.
1: Well, I think the issues that we're talking about this evening are definitely the places that I've been lately. Since uh, the beginning of the fall, I've been to New York, Boston, to a small town in Maine. I've been up in Northern California several times. I think these same issues are pervasive in our culture, and part of to, to go back to what we were just talking about. Part of it is also because these are these national chains that have the you know the four burgers for 99 cents, and but I think kids are uh, subject to the same kinds of temptations and maybe poor choices all over. The country. I mean, the main thing that I find the food in a different level—not about what we're talking about here so intensely, but just sort of the, the restaurant food and the places that I go to—is that the food in, in L.A. is always, to me, much cleaner. You know, you can go to these restaurants in New York, like ABC Kitchen, and and all of these places that are supposedly very vegetable-oriented, and they do use the farmers' market ingredients and all that. But somehow they taste heavier. Even in the summertime, they taste heavier and and different to me, and and it's so refreshing. I, I, you know, in all those years that I was going back and forth to New York so often, every month at least once a month, if not twice, between New York and Los Angeles, and I would, it got to be kind of like a little bit of a game with me to try to find a salad at lunchtime it was really difficult to find. You could go to, you know, chain types of places, but if I was going for a business lunch or something, I was always eating what I called dinner for lunch. You could not find... Ironically, the only place you could find a salad was at Michael's. Uh, You know, the (laughs) the New York branch of the the very well-known Santa Monica restaurant. And it was always very... It got to be very frustrating. I, I used to get a little mad. It's like, you know, I don't want, you know... A uh, fish and a fancy sauce and potatoes and all that for lunch. I, you know, that's a dinner thing. So, uh, you know, ironically, one of the first things I did after, uh, after I stepped down was I, I lost some weight because it just, you know, I just wasn't having to eat like that anymore and I could make my own choices. But I see the same thing with, <coughs> with working class families and food banks being stretched. Uh, when I was in this uh, small town in Maine, there's a, you know, when in these smaller towns, the, there's a great community spirit of everybody helping everybody and, and so people were very involved in trying to feed everyone in the community and especially with the cuts that have just been made, again, just recently to the SNAP program. Uh, so, I don't find that so different as I travel across the country but I do find the the food, the taste of the food and the the preparation of the food just seems to be less clean to me than when I travel <laughs> I mean, in California.
4: Well, certainly people in Los Angeles take their food very seriously compared to people in other parts of the country. I had been living on the East Coast for a number of years before moving to L.A. in 2004 and was taken aback by how serious, you know, the, the foodies, you know, <laughs> the concept of the foodie. And, um, you know, I think people in L.A., you know, also largely due to the health department with the um, letters that mm-hmm, restaurants now mm-hmm. get. As a, you know, Jonathan Fielding was the one who took the lead on that, he was the head of our health department. We also, the, you know, there's, a, there's the, the restaurants are motivated more now to prepare foods in healthy ways and have um, clean restaurants because they don't want to get a B or a C, mm-hmm. you know? Um, because... Unfortunately...
0: W- um, Getting a B or a C doesn't have much to do with how the food is actually prepared. That's true, but it's it about thing. It has a lot to do with if there's holes in the walls and, yeah. and the temperature of the and water the and all The temperature of the water yeah. the food. They, but they but the health department is doing a new push um, for, with
4: for menu labeling. Um, with, with menu
0: labeling, um, with which I think is really interesting.
4: You know, I was speaking of, in Philly. I, I, I was a couple of years ago. I took a leave of absence, spent some time in Philadelphia, and. Um, I used to go to this restaurant across the street from my office. It was—I won't tell you. It's a Dunkin' Donuts, okay? I used to get my coffee. <laughs> Boy, I really <laughs> had and, to pull that uh, out. Uh, <laughs> and I asked the—I asked the you know the woman behind the register because they had menu labeling uh, the you know they had the calories up there. And I said, does anybody actually pay attention? Because you know, this is a Dunkin' Donuts. Mm-hmm, if you're going to a Dunkin' Donuts, you probably really mm-hmm. don't care about the calories, right? I mean. The the, the woman behind the register said, "Yeah, only those who ask for Splenda." So you know, so it's you know, I mean, I think menu labeling and these sorts of efforts are laudable. Um, I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to determine whether or not it has an impact, particularly on the population that it should have an impact on—not those who are already who already drank the Mm Kool-Aid, but rather those who are not eating as healthy.
0: Well, don't you feel that it's just, it, it's one prong of a multi, uh, like a toolkit that you need of education. Like I feel like chefs, uh, independent restaurant chefs, have done a huge amount of informal education over the last decade around vegetables. I mean, when here in LA, when people started buying um, at the farmer's markets. And hi, Laura. I saw you somewhere. Yeah, Where's Laura Avery? <laughs> Say hi, Laura Avery. <laughs> um, um, when, when chefs started really patronizing the farmer's market and, and, um, and then labeling on their menu that this broccoli was from Weiser and this lettuce is from Coleman, um, all of a sudden there started to be a conversation um, that was... I don't think was there before, really, um, between the diner and the chef, and I think that had a lot to do with moving vegetables more to the center of the plate, to take push the the um, animal proteins a little bit more to the side. Um, do you think that? Uh, so, don't you think that even something as funky as a menu board can also have just some collateral effect of of education?
4: Perhaps. I mean this isn't my area of inquiry, but you know, uh, it just worked from my I mean, you know, the
0: other the last I,
4: week. I think it depends on the venue. Um, you know, so if it's a McDonalds menu board, probably less so. I think it well, I always had
0: five guys, I have to okay five guys. I was at five guys. <sighs> like, and I w- they had a menu board with calories and I went, Wow, that's really interesting. And so I made a choice. I got the little guy, you know, I I figured, okay, I'll save 300 calories. That's like good. You know, I'll be full and I'll be, I'll be fine. I won't be disgustingly full. You know, I was willing to let that go.
4: But, But you're also an informed consumer in general. I mean, my point is with those who are less informed, um, but all
0: it, of us at some point were less informed. It's a road that we all travel on to become. Now I'm the kind of consumer that's overly informed and it's really scary. <laughs> you know, because then what we were talking before, you become so aware here in Los Angeles about not just the healthfulness of what's on your plate, but the healthfulness for the planet and the way it was produced and, and issues of sustainability that can become incredibly arcane and, and many of us make choices, very specific ones, um, in our homes by what we buy, but then, you know, you go out into the larger LA world and you stop at a taco truck and you know that's like Smart and Final and Restaurant Depot meat and you're like yeah. chowing it down and it's delicious.
2: And, it's, and, it's, and the same people that, that idolize like a taco truck are the same people you know that idolize a, a taco truck that you know, has mystery meat and, and whatever tortillas, that might be GMO or not. They are the same people that idolize like a restaurant that uses like produce from a certain farm. So, but I'm curious as to why these people turn a blind eye towards that. Um, I think it's
1: just all part of the schizophrenia of the food world <laughs> yeah. to begin with. Now, Cognitive I mean, when you're talk, you were talking at the very beginning about media, you know, about how media has been um, promoting health and and you know, well, the media that I see that most people are watching is the media on the Food Network, and they're promoting nothing except the people who are on there. <laughs> and true. younger and younger people are watching those shows on Food Network. You know, I'm sitting here while we're talking, thinking, wouldn't it be great if there would be a show on Food Network that would just inform you about what choices to make and what foods are good and show you how to cook this healthfully and it wouldn't have to cost a lot of money? I think they would never do it because it's not exciting enough. It's too boring. Well, it's I, think, not, you know, unless I think
0: the Cooking Channel is a little, because yeah. of its its focus on more ethnic cuisines, and some of the, the people who are cooking, who are doing dump and stir, which is what right, these shows are right. called, are, um, do, and I mean, they don't emphasize the, maybe, the healthful aspects of I, I agree of it. with
1: you, but it's struggling. I mean, it has no ratings, and, you know, meanwhile, it's just very interesting to me about how these we have all these different pockets now of of what food is, we have what we've been talking about, we have things like food network, we have the, the blogger nation, we have uh the restaurant crowd and all the different kinds of restaurants we have from you know what's always interesting to me is how we have so few fine dining restaurants in l a anymore and do we really need them do we really need them anywhere you know and just it, it, it's just so interesting to me to see what kinds of places are opening up and the fact that it's as hard as ever to get into the popular ones. And so someone has money to eat out and someone, you know, and the people who I see in these restaurants are not, you know, necessarily in my age group. They're more in your age group and slightly older. And so, you know, it's just so fascinating to me. I think it's very exciting and very energizing. I'm just very perplexed by Food Network.
0: (laughs) And I find it very frustrating. Like, if you could, Alex, if you could wave a magic wand... For something that the part of the food community that it has more resources and is well-educated and is um, good on media
4: to help intervene, what would you, what would you ask? I, I, I mean, one of the problems is, is that we, just, we don't have a, um, you know, there's a problem with our public education. So I'm not sure it's... I mean, I understand the role of media, but there's also a role that public education should be playing. And in, in many ways, our physical education and health education programs in public schools are failing, particularly in low-income communities. And, you know, in, in our work in East L.A., and I'm, I'm not going to, you know, call, name names or anything, but, you know, with we do intensive work with not all the kids, but a group of kids in these schools. And after they're, you know, completed our program their food knowledge increases considerably. And we're teaching them things that should be taught in any health education class in a public high school. And so... Or ho- what
0: used to be called an, home ec- economics,
4: right? Well, yes. Which but uh, now uh, when I took home economics, I just remember making a little bag and I sewed. I didn't <laughs> learn much about food. <laughs> um, you know, so... Your gym bag. The second
1: part of the year was cooking. I mean, you didn't stay long enough.
4: They made me take shop or something. Uh, I don't oh, remember. right. The guys uh, did not uh, take cooking. Yeah, I, the guys didn't take the cooking wow. for it. Um, <laughs> um, we've come a long way, I think. <laughs> so uh, I would say that, you know, while media should and can play an important role in educating people about obesity and f- food and diet mm-hmm. and physical activity and access to care and, follow, and getting screened for chronic diseases and all the kinds of things that we worry about and think about and study in public health. Um, I think the first place to start, however, is improving our public education system and improving access to good education. Um, So it's not just a matter of, you know, getting kids to complete high school, which is a challenge in many of these communities by itself, Mm -hmm. but making sure that that education is of good quality. Because one thing we know and we observe across multiple health studies, multiple health outcomes, multiple health issues, is that the consistent and most robust, robust factor that predicts poor outcomes across multiple domains is poor education.
0: So... I I just wanted to bring up something that I think is really interesting. Um, Roy Choi, um, that most of you probably know from The Kogi Truck, um, and he's just come out with a new book, uh, a memoir called um, L.A. Sun. L.A. Sun, yeah. You should know. I've interviewed him. he uh, he made a bit of a splash at this very high-end culinary conference that um, happens every year in, um, in Copenhagen called MAD. And while most of the chefs were getting up and they were um, talking about um, this new way of preparing something, something else to prepare it, he got up and he basically threw down to the chefs that Every chef that has backing from um, an investment group, which is most of them, the young group, when they do something on a high-end street where they know they're going to make bank, that they should also make their investors underwrite a restaurant in a community of need. And that by doing that, and just being there, just the sheer presence of doing it and being there, hiring people from the community, not dumbing down a menu—that um, it would be an enormous resource. And I think to myself, man, I could think of ten guys that if they did that now, it would be huge. So I think that it's your role as um, it's your role as the community to you know start pushing people.
2: But then also. If a you know if a restaurant of that caliber kind of opens in a in a you know in east LA or in, I mean I know for a friend of mine Eddie Ruiz um, Eddie who owns um, um
0: Corazon, y Miel.
2: Corazon y Miel he opened up in in Bell. Bell which is southeast LA which is I mean if be, before him there was only just what, La Caste Mexicana
0: I I wish I had that restaurant in my neighborhood <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly but like but how hard I mean how many people from, are actually eating there and, and is it enough to, to allow him to, to stay in business for but a But that's true
0: about every restaurant everywhere. Yeah, that's true.
2: But I mean, <laughs> in and, and, and that, that part of town, like... Yeah.
0: I mean, what he's doing is yeah. unbelievable. And I'm sure he can't wait until open yeah. in a different location. But, but part of it also is build it, build it and they'll come you know right
4: which which doesn't necessarily doesn't always happen this is no, where
0: but this, it doesn't always happen yeah, on this is melrose this the social either. marketing right, right but as but, i can attend but
4: if the if the if the spirit of the change is to improve health in the community or at the population level it needs to be accompanied by serious social marketing you know it's not you you just because you change the menu or if you have a serious you know high health literacy menu Um, you know, you hire people from the community, that by itself will not bring in foot traffic. You have to educate the community about, first of all, you have to let them know the restaurant exists. And you gotta let them know that there's gonna be food there, that they're gonna, you know, when people go, particularly for people who don't have a lot of money, um, when they're going to a restaurant, not a fast food restaurant, but a restaurant, they're going for either a celebration or an experience. They're not going necessarily because they wanna eat a healthy salad. They're going out for an event, you know.
0: But healthy doesn't have to mean a boring
4: salad. That's true. You know? Yeah, but Mm. I mean, you know, if you're not used to (laughs) eating salads, you know, it's it's all about kind of re-engineering or getting people to think about food in a different way. And I think that's easier in some communities than it is in others. And what do you mean
2: when you keep on saying social marketing? What does that mean exactly? That means,
4: you know, um, making you know, the community aware of healthy eating, um, what is healthy eating, what impact it has on education. your Education. Mm-hmm. It's okay. education.
0: And the kind of education you do is one person at a time?
4: We do it at the community level. So, mm-hmm. and in fact, our, um, our and I say our because my colleague Michael Prelips over there, mm-hmm. wave your hand Michael, he's, he's my colleague and co-conspirator. Um, Uh, you know, we get our youth involved in the social marketing and, um, they go knocking on doors. They do work in peer groups. So Um, is it like a promotora model? No, it's a youth, no, it's a youth engaged model. It's not a promotora model.
0: And, um, and once you get them to drink the (laughs) Kool-Aid?
4: What you find anecdotally, I mean, we're still in the middle of doing our science. is that, but when you talk to the kids and you talk to their families, that the, that the level of food knowledge has changed not just among the, the, the kid, but also in the family because they go home and they talk to their mm-hmm. parents and they talk to their siblings and they talk to their friends. And when we talk to the parents, particularly the moms, they'll tell us, oh yes, we're cooking differently as a result of our kid being part of your program and the, the education you've been doing with, the, with my child. So it's actually what we're finding, at least anecdotally, is that it's having an impact on the families as well.
0: Thank you so much. Um, I think it's time for questions now.
4: Hi, my name is
2: Cameron Gasfree. My question is about the role of the government in eating healthy or unhealthy food. I know you talk about food justice and the difference between poor neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods, but you know at the same time that. The government is giving free hand to companies like Monsanto, uh-huh. subsidizing agri- big agribusiness with our tax money, and at the same time, they're cutting uh, food stamps. So it makes a big difference you know, in our choices, especially in poor neighborhood choices, in what they eat or what's available to them, You know, fast foods, or they don't have access to Farmers market,
4: because they're not cheap, you know, farmers are struggling, they don't get subsidized from the government. So just your thoughts. There's also different levels of government. I think, you know, you can see, now obviously, you know, our federal government has been a mess for some time and is filled with contradictions. Um, so that's an old story. But I think at the local level, particularly what, you, what we saw in South LA a couple of years ago where they imposed um, strict um, policy limitations on building new fast food restaurants in the community because of the obesity epidemic in South LA. And I'd like to see that in other parts of the city. I mean, we we don't see uh, fast food restaurants on the west side like we do in those communities. I mean, you know, if I want to go to a fast food restaurant in my neighborhood, I have to get in my car and drive, you know, for a while till I hit one. Um, You know, so there are local... You know, the the, the local government, I think, can play a really good and positive role.
0: And here (laughs) in this city is really starting to rev up. I should say that I'm a member of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council. Mm -hmm. Um, We have several working groups. The working group, to be involved in a working group, you don't have to be a council member. And um, the website is goodfoodla.org and um, that's a great way to get involved and there are literally hundreds of amazing organizations here in Los Angeles with really committed people doing really great work. So we have to, I think that the point about like don't focus on the federal government except you must vote. <laughs> and and you know, yell when sort of you, we have to do it ourselves. Because, yeah, we do yeah. have to do it ourselves.
2: But also, um, with that is uh, it all goes down to the money, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, and, and education, because you know, the these families or these mothers and fathers that are buying the meat, they don't know that that it's treated with uh, hormones or antibiotics or you know that it's not organic, and and it, and it's, it's whatever is cheaper. Um, just to answer the question about the about like if the the government involvement um, families still have to eat and they have to buy whatever is cheap to buy to make for their families
5: that's true so much of what you talked about it's about education and young people and family but also community engagement and so there are um, so many
4: organizations including one example is the Social Justice Learning Institute in Inglewood, California that builds community gardens with the idea it it is about creating demand
5: so my question is about how do we how do we um, create demand in communities where there are food swamps and deserts so that young people and their families want the good food.
0: It's about engagement. And you have to get yeah. them young. And the fact that school gardens in, the, in Los Angeles have become like crazy. just It used to be so rare and now it's more rare to see a school that's not either has one or is working really hard to get one. It's when you talk about quality education, that's like the first rung of food literacy, really. I guess it's it's a matter of what can we, like people that are sitting in the seats. The people who are (laughs) sitting in the seats, if you have time and you're interested, there are so many amazing volunteer opportunities. You you could avail yourself of talking to this young woman here. And you could also really, if you go on to the goodfoodla.org website, it sort of takes you to a list of all the organizations that the Food Policy Council and associated people work with that just, it runs the gamut from um, not just food based issues but also space issues. The fact of in, in a lot of these communities that we're talking about, there aren't safe parks, There aren't. there isn't great community space, so.
4: I think earlier Alex Ortega mentioned that education is the key to uh, having people make healthy choices. And I know that restaurants reveal their uh, calorie information uh, as a way to do that. Um, But I'm wondering if uh, it's really more useful to reveal, say, the carbohydrate, sugar, and glycemic load information of, of foods, because those are things that drive obesity and diabetes. And maybe that information will help people make better choices in their foods. It's not just about the calories, it's also about the sugar and salt and the other things that go into these unhealthy foods. I think, unfortunately, for many of these menu boards, they just don't have the space. And so, you know, at some point, you know... Uh, do, do you know what the public the
0: public health initiative with restaurants, what what form that, that's taking? The one that Paul Simon is, has been working yeah, on? Yeah,
4: you know, I just heard a lecture by Jonathan Fielding a couple of weeks ago, and, and there is... An, I, you know, and I, I'm not involved in this push, but um, there is a push within that... County Health Department to have better menu menu lab, labeling in restaurants, and
0: I think that there's an ability for restaurants to sign up, sort of like, you know, if you if you were a slow food restaurant, you would have a snail on your window. I think mm-hmm. it's some sort of
4: healthy food. There's some. You're right. Mm-hmm. There is some sort of, but
0: it isn't, it isn't slow food, obviously. It, but it but it's something akin to that. That if you fill a certain um, set of parameters, then you can get a label.
4: You get a sticker on your door. I exactly. Um, is it, is but, it, I d- yeah. and also just a, one last thought about what, about what he just mentioned, which was, um, you know, speaking about food literacy, I mean, I think most, the general population could understand the concept of a calorie. But when you start talking about sugar and carbohydrates and salt, it's harder to kind of understand what is healthy and what is not. And I think because we're trained from very young to understand the concept of a calorie, but not these other food issues.
0: And that's why they sell us the 100-calorie Oreo bags.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think when we talk about Los Angeles being different from the rest of the country and and we say we, I, I have a fear we're talking about we meaning the people, our friends and the people we talk to all the time, people we read about all the time, people we listen to on the radio. And you know what shook me back to reality was this weekend, my father insisted on uh, taking me to a Red Lobster restaurant, which to him is the height of culinary delight. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to tell you, that place was packed, packed. People were waiting uh, for tables and it was an enormous restaurant. And it wasn't cheap, I mean the, the typical entree there was about $20 and it was uh, you know, almost entirely flavorless uh, seafood that they get from God knows what farm. But I, I, was, I just wanted to write the, raise it to are you sure L.A. is really that different from the rest of the country?
0: Yes, L.A. has everything. We have everything. But the one thing we have that the rest of the country doesn't have is this whole other set of things. I mean, basically Fresno County is the 15th largest economy. Just the farm economy of Fresno County is the 15th largest economy in the world if it were classified as a country. We are we live in this unbelievable state. So the reason you can't ever get a good salad in New York is that most places don't go to the farmer's markets, and we're sending them our balls of iceberg lettuce from here. So the the amazing thing about L.A. is that we have this proximity to excellence, whether we choose to use it or not. That's a question of education for all of us, I think.
1: And I think it also speaks to... The, the compartmentalizing I was talking about, and what Evan just said, we have everything, including Red Lobster and the Olive Garden, and I, mean, those I kinds didn't. of places that, that are packed all the time. I mean, you, you're right; they're very, you know, the Cheesecake Factory. Don't even my head just exploded? So don't, you know, don't, you know, uh, the largest grossing restaurant, you know, of all time or whatever it is. It just oh, it makes me one nuts. meal makes five. Yeah. yeah, one meal feeds ten.
4: I mean, it's ridiculous. But, but but the point is also that some communities in LA can access and choose to purchase foods at farmer's markets right, and whatnot, exactly. but some don't have that option. There are other communities in our right. city that, don't have, that cannot choose and do not have that yeah. option. And but, that, and the disparity is what makes us unique.
2: And, and hmm. even like in the farmer's markets in Boyle Heights and East LA. Which, I, I don't know what farmers go there, but... Mo- um,
4: it's, growing. It's, yeah, it's, it's growing. It's growing. But,
2: it's still, but most kids still buy like the cupcakes, you know, or they'll... The last time I
4: went there, I bought the burrito. Exactly. So, <laughs> so you're a testament. Well, Laura Avery would
0: say <laughs> that that's point. not really a farmer's market, yeah. but... Um, it was good. <laughs> but um, we have to start somewhere. And I will say that, you know, what other city, major urban area, has 80, 80, count them, more than 80 farmers markets during the course of a week. They're not all like Santa Monica, but you know they're there. They're there.
2: I wanted to ask you about uh, the L.A. Unified uh, School Meal System. Um, we have free and reduced lunch at my kid's school. I want to know where it falls on the quality scale. I know for years it's been improved upon, and public <laughs> policy experts and nutritionists, I'm sure, are, have been involved. So, where does it fall on the quality scale, and what can we learn from maybe other parts of the country or other countries who have public school meal systems?
0: The thing we could learn is to give the poor people who are in the unenviable situation of having to prepare meals on, like, what? $1.43. a dollar 43 80
5: cents for breakfast a dollar 20 for
0: lunch there you go 80 cents for breakfast a dollar 20 for lunch i mean you know if this is what we think of our children i mean that gets you into a whole larger societal question what do we think of our children what do we think about the children who go to public education and what are we willing to give them to start them out in Can life
5: you speak to that i work for LAUSD i'm a cafeteria supervisor we feed I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm sorry. i need- sorry.
0: Um, we we oh. need to record what you're saying. Yeah. So, so let's we, give her a mic. A- though it's interesting. We need- I'm sorry. Don't
5: say. Sorry, <laughs> Go no, It needs to be recorded. Okay. <laughs> um, I work. For- Woo. Okay. Okay. <laughs> She'll hold it for you. Oh, really? All right. Um, I work for LAUSD, and we've made incredible strides in the past, particularly three years. We don't serve chocolate milk anymore because of the, so- the um, sugar. Our levels of sodium are incredibly reduced and fall well below the, the um, national guidelines. Um, we're actually the leaders in the country in reducing our levels of sodium and sugar. We feed fresh fruits and vegetables every single meal, and I mean every meal. And the kids have to take them. Um, we do serve- they eat them or do they throw them away? Well. They're getting better. They're getting better. Um, Life is a process.
4: But we. The district has been beaten up in the past yeah. with this, and they're doing a really good job. And, you know, and they need to be commended for the major progress in school lunches and breakfast.
5: We're 100% whole wheat. We've got 450 schools right now serving breakfast in the classroom at no cost to any student, which is unbelievable. Um, My cafeteria managers start at 4.30 in the morning cooking food to have breakfast ready when those kids come in.
0: And I heard recently, I wish I could remember where I read this, but um, yeah, that the the days of the cafeteria airline kitchens seem to be going away, that more and more kitchens, are starting to be outfitted as actual places of cooking. How can we actually show the children? I mean, do we need to get the, the guy that cooks for schools, you know, the, the chef? Like, how can we change LAUSD? Because it's, it's the children. If you change the children to do what they've done, even the small changes they've managed to make in the past few years with no budget, constant reductions is, I mean, this is a conversation that could just go on for hours, this tiny little piece.
4: And I think the district has done a good job especially over the last decade in improving the food it serves to its kids and it needs to be you know, we have to quit bashing on the district Mm -hmm. and saying you know um, I I think the the district is really (laughs) trying to make concerted efforts to serve healthy food to the kids.
3: Thank you so much for being here everyone.